Well, we're in Romans chapter 9. I would encourage you to have your Bibles open there. I want you to see these verses. I'm not making these verses up. Uh, (laughs) These are actually in your Bible, believe it or not. Titled the sermon with a question. It's a question that many ask when they confront these truths. The question is, is God unfair? Last week, the question was, has God failed His chosen? And the resounding answer from the text was, absolutely not, right? Absolutely not. This week, I think the question that has to be answered is, is God unfair? And obviously, we know the answer to that as well. But let's let these verses build this out. Paul is unfolding for us a a theodicy. In this service last week, I said that wrong. I said theophany. I meant theodicy. This is a a, a defense, as it were, of the righteousness of God in election. And God doesn't need us to defend him. But through Paul, in the inspired word, he is revealing to us how righteous he is in all that he does, especially in the high point of his goodness in showing mercy and in hardening and judging sinners in their sin. So is God unfair? By way of review, let me just read the verses we looked at last week because these these verses flow into our verses today. Paul says this, verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not All are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So not all Israel is Israel. Just because Abraham is your father and the blood of Abraham flows in your veins does not mean that you are one of God's children. It's not enough to just say we have a father in Abraham. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Ishmael was firstborn of Abraham, but Isaac was the son who received the covenant promise. And so last week we saw the contrast of those two brothers, but Paul doesn't want to leave it with just those two brothers because I think he anticipates the objection. Well, those, that was a different circumstance. And so he goes now to another set of brothers. And that's where we're going to spend some time today. Romans chapter 9 verses 9 to 13 gave a title to this section that God is sovereign in election. Very straightforward, but its implications are massive for us. God is sovereign in election, that is in choosing whom he will have as his covenant people, those whom he will save. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now, just pause there. I could have put that in last week's sermon, but the flow was so important this week that I wanted it in this week. I just want to just make sure we see this. The point of, of, of of that verse is that God keeps his word. If he says he's going to do something, he does it. If he promises something, it is going to happen. And one of the ways we know the word of God has not failed is when he told Sarah, who was an old, old woman, you're going to have a baby about this time next year. And she did. (laughs) It It was a miracle child of Abraham and Sarah. Their firstborn, she was 90. He was 100. 
I haven't met too many people of that age that are having kids. And that's God's point. That's His whole point. Who can do that in and of themselves? You can't do it. But I can, He says. Now He goes on. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived. This is Isaac's wife. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Now he goes on, but I just have to pause here and build out some of what's taking place. We know this story of, of Isaac and Rebekah. Let's just, by way of review here, these details are important. Why Jacob and Esau? Why, why is Paul wanting us to see Jacob and Esau? Why is he not content to just leave it with Isaac and Ishmael? Well, because they had different mothers, right? The mother of, of Ishmael was from Egypt, and, and she wasn't the real wife of, of Abraham. It was kind of a, a, let's take matters into our own hands and make this happen. And so you could see the objectors saying, well, Paul, here's the deal. I mean, you, you can't really build a case off of Ishmael and Isaac. We know that was, that was a huge mess, what they did. And he says, okay, let's go on to another set of brothers. The twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Now, one of the amazing things to consider <laughs> about all three of the patriarchs and their wives. These are the, the first three who are the patriarchs of the Israelites. Every single uh, one of them battled with infertility and struggled to have children. Sarah was 90. Rebecca fought for 20 years to have children. Wrestled with this. Struggled with this. Now, Imagine the pressure, okay? Some of you grandparents are like, can't wait to have grandkids. Come on, son, daughter. When, when's it going to happen? What's the word? Just imagine if you're Abraham and Sarah and you have one son who is the child of the covenant. He is the covenant promised child and you're supposed to have a nation, okay? You're supposed to be a nation and you're old and you have one son and then he gets married. You know what I'm saying? It's like, well, son, you know what your job is. Isaac, Rebecca, be fruitful and multiply. Build a nation. That's your, that's your work. And then a year goes by. And then two and three. No kids. And then five years pass. Ten, a whole decade passes. And no kids 20 years go by and they are childless. Why? Who is sovereign over the womb? God is. God is sovereign over the womb. What is He doing in this? Why wait 20 years? You're supposed to have a nation. Come on! And He says, my timing. Trust me. Oh, how often God will proclaim that to us through the discipline of patience. Trust me. Trust me. Lord, why don't you act? Where are you? Are you working? Are you going to help us? Are you going to solve this? And his answer is, I am able. I am good. I'm teaching you to trust me. Now, when dealing with infertility, these things are very sensitive. And there are times when the Lord opens the womb and times when He doesn't. 
God is enough in either situation. He is enough. In Rebecca's case, after 20 years of trying to have children, he opened her womb to twins. They came from one man, Abraham, uh, no, Isaac. They came from Isaac, the same father, the same mother. Now, this is significant. This is part of Paul's, Paul's case here. You have twin sons from the same father and mother, and they share the same womb. How are you going to dif- differentiate between the two? Well, humanly speaking, you can't. And then the Lord does what is amazing. He does the, like the ultimate ultrasound, right? You have... Two nations in your womb. There are two sons in your womb. Listen to how this goes. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue or be displayed or stand not because of works, but because of him who calls, that's God, there's that word call, call that call, he calls to life. She was told the older will serve the younger. What's amazing is they're not even born yet. <laughs> God, is, God is not only making a, a choice in election, but he's also declaring how it's going to unfold. The older will serve the younger. They're twins. We're not talking about a separation much at all. In fact, Jacob comes out holding on to the heel of his brother Esau as if he's trying to fight to be firstborn from the very beginning. That's why they called him the heel grabber. Esau is born first, but the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, Paul says. Whoa. I would imagine that these are not the go-to verses on a Sunday morning when you're like, hey, what should I preach? I don't know, maybe. How about those verses? (laughs) These are tough, tough verses. But as we saw in 2 Timothy 3.16, these verses are for you. They are good for us. They benefit our faith. They strengthen us. They they reveal the glory and goodness of God. So, let's dig in. Why did God choose Jacob rather than Esau? Why? Why did He choose Jacob over Esau? Well, the philosophers will kick in at this point. And human philosophy will begin to contemplate. Well, here's why. This is... This must be what it is, right? And, and I've talked to so many who have come up in the church and, and not really done lots of text work, but done lots of thinking work. And that's good. It's good to think, but never without the text. So we think and we say, well, it must be because Jacob is worthy. There, there's something that he's going to do that will make him set apart in more, maybe in righteousness. He's going to be more worthy of God's choice. Um, Have you read about Jacob's life? This guy was a swindler, a thief, a liar. He stole from his brother. 
deceived his dad dressing up like a hairy man. This is not a question of Jacob's worthiness. <laughs> That's established. It's not that. Well, what about Jacob's free will? Where is that play? That has to be the difference maker, right? Why does God choose one and not the other? Well, it's got to be free will. Does it say that in there? Does it say that in your Bible anywhere? It doesn't, my friends. It simply doesn't. Now, we can try to kind of make sense of these things by thinking about free will, but that is not biblical theology. Is it foreseen faith? Well, God knew that Jacob one day would choose him, and so he, he chose Jacob. Is, is that what Paul's saying? Look at what Paul says. He labors to make this point as clear as day. They were not yet born, had done neither good or bad. This is not with a view to their merit whatsoever. Either one. What does it have a view to? The whole point of this is that God's purpose of election would continue. He, his, God says, I choose. I make the choice. I am the one that chooses. I am the sovereign in salvation. <clears throat> I am the sovereign in election. And then, just in case we were wondering if there was any other wiggle room, Paul says, it's not because of works. Foreseen or actual. It's, not, it's just not that. Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? It's because of him who calls. It's because of God. That's the answer. Because God chose Jacob and not Esau. The older will serve the younger. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. This confronts our thoughts of how God should be and how God should work and, and how things are. And, and sometimes it confronts an entire construct of who God is and it can be devastating, honestly. Scary to consider that God would work in this way. But he does. This is, my friends, unconditional election. That's a very accurate and good theological term to put to what this is. How does God choose whom he will set his covenant love upon? He chooses them unconditionally. He doesn't look and say, who deserves it? Who will choose me? Who merits my mercy? He simply says, I set love on you. I set love on you. I set love on you. Reminds us of Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Oh, friends, the Scripture is very consistent on this point. It has to do with the glory of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Well, that must be the answer. It's, it's faith. It's, it's, that's what we do. That's our, that's our part. So if you don't do the faith thing, then you don't deserve to be saved. And if you do the faith thing, then you do deserve to be saved. Isn't that how it goes? No. Because... This is not your doing, he says. It's, it's not your doing. It's the gift of God. The very faith that saves you is the gift of God. 
It's not a result of works. And why is this so important? So that no one may boast. Friends, if we allow the text to say just with simplicity what it says so clearly, our theology will be tuned to the word. John MacArthur said this, our response in salvation is faith. Yes, but even that is not of ourselves, but is the gift of God. Faith is nothing that we do in our own power or by our own resources. It is, uh, in, in the first place, we don't have adequate power and resources because we're totally depraved. We are blind, hostile, enslaved. Secondly, God would not want us to rely on them even if we did have them. Otherwise, salvation would be in part by our own works. And we would have a ground to boast. That's his whole point. There's no boast in us because we didn't do it. God did. Paul intends to emphasize that even faith is not from us apart from God giving it to us. Hmm. John Piper says it this way, God does not choose us because we will believe. He chooses us so that we will believe. That is a proper biblical understanding of God's choice, God's electing work in eternity past. Hmm. The older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, when you hear that, what stuns you more? Jacob I loved or Esau I hated? What's more shocking in that sentence? What shocks you more? The second one tends to be the thing that surprises us most in our day. Hmm. These are tough things. It forces us to ask the question, does God love everyone? Does he? Does God love, how, if, if someone asks you just point blank, does God love everyone? Biblically, how would we answer that? Resoundingly, yes. He does. He does. In fact, John 3.16, one simple little verse. It says, for God so loved the world, right? He loves the world by sending his son Jesus as a declaration of his righteousness, of his wrath, and of the salvation that is in Jesus alone for sinners, right? That is a display of his love. The call is come and be saved. The call goes to the ends of the earth. That is a loving, gracious call. It's the general call of the gospel. There's another way God loves us. Every single person on the face of the earth experiences the love of God in his patience, his forbearance, that he doesn't strike us dead in our sins where we stand every minute of the day, sentence us immediately to the fires of hell for our rebellion and sin. He loves us in kindness and patience. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Common grace is set upon all He has made. He loves everyone. But it forces us with a text like this to ask the question, does God love everyone the same way? And this is where it's a little more difficult to answer, isn't it? Is it unrighteous for God to love in different ways? 
Well, according to the Old Testament, the answer to this one is, um, does God love everyone the same way? No, He does not. He, he loved Jacob. And He set upon Esau His angry opposition. So, Listen to where Paul draws this quote from. When he says, Jacob, I, it, is, it is written, Jacob, I have loved, Esau, I have hated, he's quoting the Old Testament from Malachi chapter 1. Let me just read you in answer to the question, does God love everyone the same way? Listen to what God himself says through the prophet Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord to his people, Israel. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. There's the quote. Let's read the rest in its context. I have laid waste Esau's hill country, the Edomites, and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. <laughs> this, this is an amazing thing that God declares to Israel as an evidence of his love for them. How does this come together for us? God says, I love Jacob. I hate Esau. I set my opposition upon Esau and his generations. And I set my covenant blessing and love upon Jacob. And all who walk in his, in, in his way, I will bless. Hmm. We confront the question that is asked in the sermon, don't we? So, verses 14 to 16, Paul knows what we're feeling right now. <laughs> this isn't new teaching for him. He's taught this for years. And as he writes the letter to the Romans, he knows what is the objection that is going to come. He knows it. He hears it from the back, shouted out already. And so he says, in anticipation of this, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? What is he, what is he hearing from the back? The shout is, as the person stands up and says to Paul, that's not fair. It's not fair. Do you feel that inside of you? I remember when I confronted these things growing up and read this and I had the exact same objection. That can't be. It can't be right. It can't be fair. It can't be righteous or just. Is there iniquity in God? How could that be fair? Behind the, uh, the opposition here, the objection is, is, is this. We, we see that's not fair because there's no way God would, would do that because everyone deserves. And all of a sudden we have to pause, don't we? When we're about to exhort the God of all glory, the God of all holiness and righteousness, we're, we're getting up in His face, right? You can't do that. Stuff because everyone deserves. Well, wait a second. What does everyone deserve? 
You feel this? This is the crux. This is the heart of the matter, isn't it? What does everyone deserve? Hmm. Both Jacob and Esau deserved God's judgment and His everlasting wrath. The surprise in the statement is not Esau I have hated. The surprise is Jacob I have loved. That should shock us. Jacob was a sinner. He didn't deserve this favor, this this mercy, this unmerited, unconditional election of God. He simply didn't deserve it at all. What did he deserve? He deserved everything that Esau received from God. And so did Esau. Esau was not without sin. Esau railed against the Lord. His generations, they were wicked. They hated God. They fought with Jacob and his generations. And and they were opposed by God the whole way. Injustice and righteousness. The whole of humanity, my friends, are sinners. We know this. We, we know this, but oh, we forget this. <laughs> it's so easy to forget this. When you're praying for someone you love who's unsaved, remember this. What does God owe them? Mercy? Grace? Forgiveness? No, He owes them wrath. A wrath that they've chosen willfully. He owes them the fires of hell forever. That is what we choose. You don't want to talk about free will. That's what our will does. It is not free. It's enslaved to sin. We love darkness. We hate light. We choose rebellion. We don't choose righteousness. And we choose hell. Always. That God would ever say to the sea of humanity, I'm going to show mercy. I'm going to show mercy on some. I'm going to set my mercy and my love on you. Shocking. Absolutely shocking that He would do that. That is the surprise of this passage. The person who could say, who only could say it's not fair is the person who receives mercy. (laughs) That's the only person who has an argument that it's not fair. That's right it's not fair. I am not receiving what I deserve. Wrath. I've received mercy. We have this interesting practice in our day. Presidential pardons. Near the end of the office, uh, the four years, the president will oftentimes give pardons out, right? Various people convicted of crimes, they will, they will pardon them. Different people do this differently. I think Trump pardoned over 200 people. I hate to bring up this, but Bill Clinton pardoned 457 people. I remember this very distinctly. 150 on his last day in office. There was a bit of an outcry when that took place. Do you guys remember that? What was the cry? It's not fair. I remember that. I, I, I said that. It's not fair. Why? Because these people were guilty. Do you think anybody on that day 
was crying, it's not fair that he not pardon every single criminal in the United States. That is not fair. You see my point? The point is, when someone is pardoned, that's the, that's the not fair. Not when someone receives the justice. Now the illustration breaks down because obviously he's looking for conditions and different situations, the president, right? So don't get lost in the details. But the, the, the idea is clear. If you receive justice, you have received what is right. If you receive mercy, you have not received what is fair and just. And, and in that, that's the whole point of it. You've received grace. It's unmerited. Hmm. What shall we say then, Paul says? Is there injustice on God's part? Here comes our phrase that we've learned to love through Romans. Meganoito. Let's say it all together. One, two, three. Meganoito. May it never be. By no means. Absolutely not. Is God iniquitous? No, He's not unjust. He is righteous. And then he quotes what God told Moses when, God, uh, when, when Moses asked, asked uh, the Lord, will you show me your glory? And God responded and he said, I will show you my glory. And then he said these words. And I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is in the context of the golden calf just echoing out. Moses is enraged. God is far more enraged. And Moses is pleading for mercy and compassion to the Lord. And, and the Lord says, listen, I'm the sovereign over this, the dispensing of mercy and compassion. Let, leave that to me. I'm the one that makes that decision. I'm sovereign in that. They all deserve to perish in this wilderness. If any survive, it will be mercy. Mercy. My mercy, God says. My free will. Hmm. God is sovereign and righteous in election. The Scripture leaves us no wiggle room here. It's, it's very clear. He is sovereign. He is righteous in election. And then the conclusion is this. So then, Paul says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. <laughs> what an amazing verse. If this is not underlined in your Bible, please do so. But please make note of that verse. It. What is it? God's love. God's election. God's sovereign salvation. It. All summed up in view here. It depends not on human will. Friends, the, the debate should be ended right here. There should be no more struggle about this whole concept of free will being the basis or the difference maker in our salvation. It's not that. This verse says it clearly. I don't understand why it continues to be so defended because it can't be defended from the Scriptures. It's not your free will that saved you. It's not. And, we can agree on this, it's not your work. You're not saved by works. You didn't accomplish your salvation. It's unconditional. What does our salvation depend upon? 
It depends upon God. He is sovereign in those whom He chooses to show mercy. It's His free will that is the basis for anyone ever being saved. Why is this important? Oh, this is so important to ask this question. Is this, is this so you can win theology debates? No, absolutely not. That's not why. It's not about being right so you can be right for people. No, it's about being accurate with who God is and how he works because there's some things on the line, some things that are very important to God. Number one, his glory. God is jealous for His glory. He will not give the tiniest amount of room for a sinner to claim that they played a part in saving themselves. Not an ounce of boasting is left when you realize God is the sovereign in saving. He elects and He saves. The second part of this is that Romans 9 follows Romans 8. There's a context for it. If we only study Romans 9 through 11 in isolation, we lose sight of the fact that Paul has just given some of the most spectacular promises to believers in all of Scripture, and they're not disconnected from Romans 9. This is true. God fulfills His Word. He can be counted on. Election is His doing, and invincibly so. It's not our doing. He works together for good. All things for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, forechose, foreloved. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son that that Jesus would be the firstborn, the preeminent one among many brothers. And all those that He predestined, He called. Called to life and all Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you you feel the promise here? If you are loved by God and you love him and you are in Christ by grace and in grace alone, you're his forever, secure, no doubt. It is no surprise to me that Satan would bring attack On this point in doctrine, so many grind at this, can't stand the thought of this. Satan hates the glory of God and he hates confident Christians. Do you feel this? This opposition at this point of doctrine for hundreds of years is not by accident. He wants to take away your confidence in the promise of God. He wants you to be uncertain in this world when you suffer, wondering if you're tasting of a wrath of a God that said He loved you, but maybe He doesn't, and how do I know I'm His and secure in His love? What if I can be lost? The glory of God is at stake. Hmm. Now let's land this in verses 17 and 18. God is free to show mercy or judgment. Paul wants to just answer this more, and he continues next week. We're going to look Look at that next week. But these two verses are significant. Another four, so it just keeps handing off four, 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 and then he says a so. So case, 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 conclusion. Case, conclusion. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this reason, for this purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power 
in you and that my glory, my name, might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. We get into a little more challenge here, don't we? Because we remember the story of Pharaoh, the greatest military power known to man at this time, the strongest, most important man with all consolidated power in Egypt, and the demand is let my people go, and Pharaoh says, no, not going to do it. Not going to do it. He hardens his heart, and here comes plague one. Let my people go. I'm not going to do it. Hardens his heart. Plague two, right? And multiple times you hear this. Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Interchangeably, back and forth, back and forth. Well, who hardened whose heart? Hmm. Pharaoh was an instrument in the hand of God just as the Assyrians are in the day of Isaiah or the Babylonians are when they came and judged and and, and completely flattened Israel and Judah and then were judged for what they had done for God and judged by God. That is the sovereign overall. Hmm. What does it mean to harden someone's heart? Does God put iniquity and sin in people? Does He cause people to sin? We know that's not true. James says that clearly. Absolutely He doesn't. I go back to my imagery here. This is so important. When the heart is hardened by God, He releases the restraints of grace that would keep any softness in a sinful heart. So Pharaoh hardened his heart. What does that mean? Well, it means he did what was natural to him as a sinner, as a rebel, a hater of God. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It means that He released restraint that was holding Pharaoh back from being evil and lifted the brakes. The dump truck is filled with iniquity. It is headed downhill. If God wants to harden your heart, all He has to do is remove the brakes and you will do what you are intending and desiring to do in your sins. You will plunge down the hill. We read about this in Romans 1 over and over three times. It says He gave them over to their sin. He he released the brakes that restrained their iniquity and the hardness of their heart. Are you as sinful as you could be? No. Apart from Christ, all these who walk without Jesus today, are they as sinful as they could be? No. That would be utterly depraved. Are you completely sinful? Yes. Totally depraved. What's the difference? Why am I not as sinful as I otherwise could be? The brakes. The brakes. When God gives over a culture to their sins, He releases the brakes in waves of wrath. He hardens hearts. He does so with justice. There's no iniquity here. It's judgment and wrath. The conclusion then, after all these verses, is this. So then he, that is the sovereign, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. In a sense, God is saying, you're saying it's about your free will, but I'm saying it's about 
my free will. And it's always been. God is free. He is free in mercy and he is free in judgment. He is free to show sinners mercy and bring them to salvation. He is also free to pass over and leave sinners under his righteous wrath, even releasing the restraints on their sin, allowing their hearts to be hardened. One of the things about this doctrine that must be a landing point is this. What Christian can walk around bragging that they are elect? <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard this, that, that somehow there's people out there who are like, I'm the chosen. I'm awesome. God saw me, said, get that guy on my team. Who brags about being God's elect? As if somehow there's a reason in me that I'm chosen. What this doctrine does is it absolutely takes every boast away from me and brings me to my knees to say, I don't deserve mercy. When the gospel is presented, if you don't help a person understand this, they will never sing Amazing Grace. Oh, the gospel is presented in too many weak ways these days. God loves you and he's just obsessed with you. You're amazing. He just wants you on his team and it's all about you. That's not true. Let's say it together. I deserve wrath. Say it with me again. I deserve the wrath of God. Let's say this. I don't deserve his mercy. Do you believe that today? Oh, this takes away the complaint. It's not fair. It takes away the argument, doesn't it? <laughs> None of us deserve His love. Not one. Our response this morning, is God unfair in election? Resounding answer from the Word of God is no. He is righteous. He is not unrighteous or unfair. And I would add, he is not bound by our free will in salvation in the slightest. Number one, we don't have it the way we think we do. Number two, that is not the way he saves. He is the sovereign in saving. The reason you are saved today, Christian, has but one answer. God. God. It has to conclude here, though. How can a God who is holy, holy, holy ever show mercy to sinners like us? There must be a mechanism for God to defend His righteousness to say to a sinner like Jacob or like Jeremy, you are forgiven. How? How can that be? There is only one way that God has, has made for that to take place, and that is through the cross of Jesus Christ, that he would say to me, I see your sin. It is hideous. It deserves my eternal wrath. And instead of placing my wrath upon you like you deserve, 
I'm going to place my covenant love upon you and I am going to call you to my son Jesus Christ and make you live in him. I am going to give you the faith that will save you from your sins and you will be made righteous as my son and my son will take every single sin you will ever commit or have committed and pay it in full on the cross. Election is about the cross of Jesus Christ ultimately. It's not about some theology debate. It is a glorious gospel reality. So Christian, don't write it off. Don't downplay it. Don't ignore it. Embrace it as the glory of God and the confidence in the promise of God as you worship your Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of this amazing grace you have given us. We are shocked that you would love Jacob and not surprised at all that you would set your opposition upon Esau. Lord, we together understand that we are no better. We are rebels, haters. We are at odds with you. Worshippers of ourselves, idolaters, liars, fornicators, those who steal and cheat and, and deceive. And, and, and we so easy to point the finger at Jacob or, or Esau and say, oh, they're unworthy. But Lord, we are unworthy of that love. And yet you have set your love upon us. We thank you for your unconditional electing work. We thank you that, that your heart would overflow with mercy when we don't deserve it. And Lord, Forgive us when we would ever look at your mercy and cry, unfair. Thank you for saving every single person you've chosen to save from before the time began. Thank you that the confidence that every single one that you wrote in the Lamb's Book of Life will be saved. And Lord, use us to that end. Help us to go and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth so that every single one would come and be called to life through the power of the gospel. Use us, Lord, we pray, and help us to rejoice in this good news. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.